Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Nat, and my brother John is in his um, his room that is adorned with stars. Um, yes. We just had a long conversation about John. You're in the, uh, what would you call that? In like the, uh, what the hell do you call those things that, 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 that where they have the, you know, the stars and the stuff that like constellations. Yeah. What well, now I'm thinking of the place you go at the, at the, uh, oh, at the uh, planetarium. <laughs> Jesus. All right. We're off to a great start. Um, I don't know even the word planetarium. John's in the planetarium. I like that we started out with like a game show though. Yes. Welcome <laughs> back. John is nestled in the hills of Northern California, safely ensconced inside of his planetarium and adorned with all of his Beatles memorabilia and whatever else he's got going on. I am sadly in my sad little man cave in West Texas. And, but I guess I should mention that the podcast is called This Is Not Church. And, uh, yeah. For no other reason than we just thought that was kind of funny and edgy. Um, and now we're stuck with edgy. it. So what are we going to do, John? We're here. Uh, yes, yeah, super yep. edgy. Um, but yeah. man, we have, uh, we have a, a great guest with us this afternoon or whatever time of day it is that you're listening to this. I guess I should not presuppose that you're listening to this in the afternoon, but we're recording it in the afternoon. So anyway, let me, let me get to the introductions and stop farting around and sound like a knucklehead. I'll get to the intro and then we're going to get off into a great conversation. So with us today, we have Linda K. Klein. She is the author of the award-winning book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed the Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. She is also a religious deconstruction and purity culture recovery coach and the founder and president of Break Free Together, a not-for-profit organization serving individuals recovering from gender and sexuality-based religious trauma. Linda has spoken around the world from the TEDx stage to the Apollo's Women of the World Festival. Her work has been featured by the New York Times, NPR, CBS, NBC, Elle Magazine, and over 150 other outlets. Linda is a trained Our Whole Lives, OWL, sexuality education facilitator, and holds an interdisciplinary master's degree in gender, sexuality, and religion from New York University. Linda has worked in the social change sector for over two decades. Her background includes founding a program on how to find and follow your purpose, used in over 200 universities for the Social Entrepreneurship Incubator, Echoing Green, and working with million-dollar donors supporting women and girls through Women Moving Millions. Linda is married to a writer and social change agent who inspires her every day, and has a and she has a daughter in diapers and another in college. That's a pretty good age span. So, yeah. any further ado, welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Linda, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. That was, that was, I, I hope we still have people. I, that was my full life. You know, I mean, and, and what, what nobody will be able to see, um, because we don't usually, we don't do video on here, uh, is just that you're about 22. So how you've done all of this in your short 22 years of life is, is shocking to me. So it's alas, amazing. alas, I am. I just feel like I should clarify for listeners that I am not, in fact, 22. Okay, 24, 25, back. Um, so this, this, uh, this, this very, very young lady has just done. I mean, age, age notwithstanding, you've, you've, you've done a, a great deal of work, and it sounds like you. Uh, you, uh, you still have more ongoing. So welcome to the podcast. If you don't mind, uh, as we mentioned beforehand offline, our, our typical opening salvo question is just typically to ask people if they wouldn't mind giving us a, an idea of their faith journey, their 
background and, and kind of see where we go from there if that if, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, I'm happy to. I'm going to try to not have it take an hour because it's you know such a big question for me, um, as I'm sure it is for many of your guests. But I'll briefly say, you know, I actually was raised um, and grew up uh, Episcopalian for the most part, a little bit Lutheran, so mainline Protestant. And when I was in seventh grade, I uh, had a born-again experience and joined the Evangelical Christian Church. And uh, my mom had already had that experience. My brother had already had that experience. And so I kind of tipped the familial scale and we um, started attending an evangelical church at that point. And it was a massive shift for me in terms of my conception of what religion was, right? Um, growing up, I think the sen- my sense of what, you know, how I saw God, how I saw religion, um, you know, there was a touch of the personal in it for me um, because my mom was already born again and very much part of evangelical circles outside of our church. But there was also something about the sort of like untouchability of God, right? And then I joined evangelicalism where I was taught to walk around with my hand a little bit open, imagining that I was walking, holding Jesus's hand, right? Um, it was just a completely different relationship. And there was a lot that I loved about that, but I was also very much exposed to some problematic things, uh, including purity culture, which I have dedicated much of my adult life to working on. Um, the basically, for folks who aren't familiar with it, the teaching that people, and in particular women and girls, can be summed up into one of two categories. You are either pure or you are impure a designation that determines our worth within our community. That was a very difficult um, pill for me to swallow, among other things, and something that did a lot of damage to me personally. So I ended up leaving evangelicalism. At this point, though, I saw evangelicalism as Christianity and didn't remember that I had been a Christian before evangelicalism, (laughs) right? Um, And so was under the impression that I was leaving Christianity and perhaps leaving God, right? Or losing my access to God. So it was a really scary time for me in my early twenties, but it was, it was also a time in which I made this, this kind of risky choice. It felt like a risky choice to, to be real about what I believed. And over time, slowly it became clear that God hadn't gone anywhere and that my access to God hadn't gone anywhere. And as the years went by even more, and I got into my 30s, became clear that Christianity, in fact, hadn't gone anywhere, and that I could return to Christianity on my own terms, which is ultimately what I ended up doing. Um, so no longer an evangelical, but still a Christian, or having returned to Christianity. All right. That's succinct. You said you were, you were worried about taking an hour. That, that is one of the most succinct, um, bios we've had in a while. So that's great. So let's, let's, let's just jump, jump right into the, to the tough stuff. Cause uh, John and I knew going in this, this would be a, um, a little bit of a challenging conversation just because of the subject matter. And let's just start off by saying how, what, what kind of damage has purity culture done that has made this a difficult conversation? Can we lay some of the blame? of that at the feet of this very movement that we're here to sort of discuss and 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 maybe take issue with. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, when I talk to evangelicals about purity culture, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that it's not a term that they're always familiar with. Um, people who have left 
the church or who are sort of um, questioning things within the church are familiar with the term. But if you're kind of front and center inside, you don't always know the term. So, you know, briefly, I'll just say before we talk about what it does and did, that purity culture is really referring to um, a kind of movement that came out of the white American evangelical Christian church that was well, well funded by the federal um, government via abstinence only before marriage um, education funding, um, with which much of which required state matches, um, that took this teaching of kind of determining your worth based on your so-called purity and turned it into uh, which was already present in the evangelical church and in our culture at large, and turned it into a, a more intense and uh, a more intense version of itself, and a, and a version of itself that scaled dramatically even beyond evangelicalism. So, what I'll say though is that before uh, before purity culture, so before the 1990s. It's not like we weren't already shaming people for sex and for sexuality and for not even, you know, sex itself, right? But for our sexuality overall. Um, and it's not like we stopped shaming people when the purity culture, per se, um, stopped getting as much money from the government and curbed was curbed in the early 2000s, around 2008. One of the things I sometimes talk about is when we look at girls and women in particular, uh, if you ever hear a grown woman <laughs> described as either a good girl or a bad girl, you know, chances are, you know what that means, whether you were raised in purity culture or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not how much she volunteers, right? This is, this right. is a culture that built, was built upon some already well-established shaming that was part of our culture to begin with. So what it does, it kind of depends on, um, it depends on the, on the intensity of the version you got, you know, and it also depends on the intensity of your religious identification. For those of us who identified with religion as like a part of us, right? Not just where we went on Sundays, but like, this is me. I am a Christian. That was certainly my case. Sounds like that was yours as well. Yeah. I'm hearing a yeah. 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 You know, the, the way in which it impacted us was much more intense. Uh, in fact, what I found is that into adult life, well into adult life, and, in, and if we don't deal with it often for our entire adult lives, folks who are raised in this intense religious purity culture struggle with sexual shame, with fear, with anxiety, and even with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so you would, might see people having nightmares about their sexuality. You might see them um, having anxiety so great that they have a panic attack and even have to go to the hospital. Um, you might see people having fear so great that they kind of start to verge in paranoia. Like, is somebody following me on my date? Are they trying to discover what I'm doing? Does somebody, am I going to get pregnant even though I didn't have sex? Is someone going to find out what I'm doing that way, right? Like, it really mirrors uh, a trauma response. Yeah. I, I can't speak for John, but I can say, I think I can get close to speaking for John, saying that we were raised in a, I wouldn't call it an intense purity culture. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're children of the seventies. And so well into our twenties before this really sort of became the norm. But as you mentioned, I mean, that was still the culture, you know, the culture very much was, um, sex was reserved for marriage and marriage alone. Um, there was an awful lot of pressure, um, to, 
to refrain from extramarital or premarital sex. And I know that that played a role in our dating. It played a, you know, in the way that we, you know, my, my wife and I were both raised in very strict religious households. And so it, it definitely played a role in our interactions, probably led to us getting married very young. Um, because God help us, we weren't, you know, we weren't going to, you know, be bad and go burn in hell. Um, so we would just be bad later. But it did actually, you know, I would say, um, even followed us into our marriage. Have you seen that be the case? I mean, people, people enter into these relationships and then you see that purity culture, um, has even impacted the way that they relate to one another as adults, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the kind of misconceptions of purity culture is that if you do everything right, if you, you know, have no sexual thoughts, no sexual feelings, if you have no sexual desires, if you make no sexual choices, then you're going to get married, you know, to your heterosexual marriage partner and you are going to have a blissful marriage, including a, like a red hot, sexy sex life, which is a really actually, you know, actually <laughs> shutting off our sexuality does not result oftentimes in a red hot, sexy sex life, which by the way, now you're expected to have. Right. 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 That's the new thing. Right. And so, you know, these, these celebrity pastors talking about their smoking hot wives and how they, you know, have been talking about their their sex lives and that in that sense trying to paint this this overly romanticized picture of their relationships right yes, um, that, that earned somehow now because they did things the right way now they're deserving of this but 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 how much too then does this sort of hyper patriarchal look too um, come into play too because I know that 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 one of the things that my wife and I struggled with and I think I can say this openly she probably won't listen but was a very Protestant evangelical view of, you know, male female roles within relationships, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, where she was duty bound to provide me with what I needed. And I've mm -hmm. seen this, I've seen recently this being taken even to more extremes with some fairly well known so called pastors excusing adultery on the parts of, of men by blaming women for not providing the correct sexual release or something like that. Um, Absolutely. And I've, so that, that just, I don't know. For, for one, it's just, it's horrifying. But do you see this as being more common than not? I mean, wh what's your experience with that? Well, I'll tell you, I have talked to a lot of people who did things the quote unquote right way and who experienced so much sexual shame, fear, and anxiety within their marriage bed, right? That they suffer from a variety of different struggles that we don't tend to talk about. You know, many women uh, suffer from vaginismus, that sort of tightening of the vagina that creates pain, physical pain, um, among other reactions that make sex impossible in many cases. Um, similarly, many men struggle with getting an erection, you know, for the same reasons that shame, fear, and anxiety is just so overpowering. And many people, when they are able to have sex, you know, struggle with um, disassociation. So sort of this experience of not really being present, right? It's like they're physically there, but their brain is somewhere else. You know, some people have described this feeling like they're floating above themselves or even something like that. It's like they can't really be present because that would trigger that shame, fear, and anxiety, you know? So it creates a pretty fraught marriage bed for many people. And, you know, like like you said, meanwhile, we have these expectations. We've, we've learned that there's an equation. Absolute non-sexuality before marriage equals, you know, this red, hot, sexy life afterward. And the women in particular, you know, become the great 
sexual satisfier of the man, ensuring that he doesn't cheat, ensuring that he doesn't leave. And the man is similarly expected to prove his masculine, patriarchal, you know, sort of stereotypical expectations by being, by being kind of, you know, hypersexual himself, right? So both parties are expected, um, or all parties are expected to be hypersexual after marriage. And what's interesting is that you know, for, for girls, you know, one of the things that I remember growing up in the church is I was actually told <laughs> one of the reasons I had to be pure was because if I wasn't pure, right? Like if I touched myself and learned how to touch myself better than my future husband could do it, right? It would ruin my marriage. He would be emasculated by my, my own sexual understanding of myself, right? Because I would be able to do something for myself and wouldn't need him. Or if I was impure, like, you know, was with someone else before I was with him, you know, then we would have a totally screwed up, damaged sex life afterward. And he would definitely cheat on me. And he would definitely ultimately leave me because that's what happens to bad girls. Bad girls get left, right? Bad girls get hurt. Bad girls get damaged. Bad girls are damaged. So, you know, these expectations that we now see playing out where people excuse adultery and so on and so forth, this is stuff that's baked into the teachings, right? As a girl, that's what I was taught would happen to you. So you not only learn that you're going to be impure for the rest of your life and damaged and dirty and lucky if anyone ever loves you, but you also learn that you're going to end up in a world of pain. So therefore, (laughs) when these couples are experiencing a world of pain, a world of pain that, by the way, purity culture engendered, right? it's really, really hard for them to come forward and talk about it because they know people are going to be like, well, what did you do wrong? You must have done something before marriage. Or maybe you're not accepting God's holy will for you now to be a sexual being. You know, in some way, you are broken. You are wrong. This is your fault. Um, And we know that that's what's going to happen. So for a lot of folks, you know, we we keep really quiet about what's happening in our marriage bed if it's not that kind of, you know, stereotypical expectation of sexual bliss. Uh, well, yeah, there's so many places we can go with this conversation. And uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording about you know, male roles and female roles within this. So yeah, Nat, Nat's right that you know, the word purity culture wasn't really something that was tossed around when he and I were teenagers. But there was already this level of expectation of what a woman was supposed to do, how she's supposed to dress, how she's supposed to act. I don't know if you remember now, but in like youth groups and Sunday school, there were times where the, the, the women would, you know, go and talk with the, the wife youth pastor and the men yep. would go and talk with the men youth pastor, mm-hmm. the male youth pastor. And we'd get our, I don't know, our instructions on how to be. <laughs> we'd get our men. talking to. About how to be nice young men. Yeah, and one of the one of the problems within the purity culture and that I saw was that men were more often than not excused for their bad behavior, as boys will be boys, right? Uh, where women uh, were called out for everything from the way they dressed, the way they acted, the makeup they put on, uh, the music they listened to. All of this called out how much of a, and I'm, it's in air quotes, 
how much of a good girl she was, right? And this goes even farther because then Nat and I have this, and I, I'm sure you've heard this too. Then you have the male youth pastor being caught in infidelity with one of his girls from his youth group. Uh, and then, so she is now knows that. Which, which I would call child abuse, but go on. Oh, yeah, 100%. Although in purity culture, although in purity culture, it would be thought of as infidelity. You're absolutely right. 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 Yeah. And would have been thought of as inspired. And quietly made to go away. Yeah, and would have been thought of as inspired by the girl, regardless yeah, of her age. Sure, because she dressed inappropriately, she wore the wrong makeup, she, all this, right? Uh, so this is already in the culture, right? We already have changed the language. So I would go as far as to say this is not only child abuse, this is rape, because uh, mm-hmm. there's no way that this younger person should have to be put in a position where she's going to say that she consented to this. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. Yep. So for all of you evangelical fundamentalist churches who have hidden all of this, you are hiding, I mean, they need to understand that they are hiding sexual abuse and rape of young girls on, on just a horrific level. And that's not even to talk about, and then, so then she gets this, this girl who's had this happen gets to go on with her life as now she is quote unquote impure, right? And she has to live through this life uh, that she's never going to be anything but the bad girl. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's, I mean, it's so angering to, to just see the way that the church has done this. I don't even know, I don't even know where to, where we go from there other than I, I really appreciate people like you who are willing to speak out and more and more women are speaking out and that, that is amazing and awesome. But uh, how do we encourage you know, as Nat and I are middle-aged, white males, heterosexuals, right? So uh, how do we help and encourage and be the allies we need to be to help women in, as they are coming out and speaking out about this? Well, that's a great question. Um, I mean, first of all, you, you know, you all hosting the conversation is such a big deal, right? Uh, I'll give you an example. With my, with my nonprofit, I organized groups, uh, or before the pandemic, I organized groups of people who gathered and, um, had what I call a purity culture story exchange. So how do we, how do we learn we're not alone, right? So we would do it over an intimate dinner and so on and so forth. And I would often, you know, talk about doing, um, conversations with men, you know, a specific dinner table just for men, right? And on occasion we did. And oh my gosh, were they powerful. But we also, I had so many men who would say to me like, man, I would love to have this conversation with men. You know, if there just aren't any other men in my area who want to have it. And then I would have that conversation with like three guys in that area. And I'd say, hey, can I connect you all to one another? Can you all, can you all, you know, would you be willing to sit down with one another and have this conversation? And they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. I wish I could, but I'm, but not enough to actually go. Like it is hard, right? For us to talk about these things. So in addition to believing women and creating platforms for women to talk about this, I think that one of the things that men can do is, um, is have these conversations with one another in which we are believing women and creating, you know, creating space to contend with some of the things that we have heard from them as well as experienced in our own lives. And, and that is really hard, I think, because, you know, one of, and you all touched on this briefly, one of the components of purity culture, you know, purity culture is actually, I don't think, when I think about the foundations of purity culture, I don't actually think it's sexuality. I think the 
foundation of purity culture is these um, stereotypical gender expectations, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, men are a manly man, <laughs> you know, right. and they're expected to be the leaders of the household and the church and potentially right. from, from everything. And so it's like a power dynamic. A power, very much a power dynamic. And women, it's called complementarianism within the church. You know, women are expected to quote-unquote complement men by being sweet and loving and supportive and feminine and following the lead of men, right? So that is the foundation of purity culture. And within those foundations, um, there are different sexual expectations for men as there are for girls, right? Everyone's expected not to have sex before marriage to be sure, right? Um, But there is a different attitude um, around sexuality uh, you know, that kind of boys will be boys attitude that you talked about, um, that makes sexual expression among boys and men, you know, it's talked about as something that you do, right? Now it can be really harming to, to be shamed for what you do, to be sure, right? Whereas women and girls, it's talked about as who you are, right? You are impure, right? Right. Yeah. So, so, so anyway, so part of these, these masculine expectations that guys get includes this hypersexuality, this non-emotionality, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and part of part of the way in which it shows up in the culture at large and a lot in the church is you can never be wrong because that's even like not you're not masculine enough if you're wrong, right? So it kind of makes people sort of stuck in their, you know, well, I once believed this, so I can never believe anything else, right? Um, I once said I believe this, so I can never change my mind. I can never admit I was wrong. Um, I can never admit I'm hurting, that I might have something going on in my life that is, that is, um, you know, really painful and that, that I'm going to be shamed for and I'm going to have my masculinity challenged over. And so these sexual conversations, this, these priority culture conversations among men, you know, it, it's really important that they happen. You know, one of the things that we often talk about, you know, in evangelicalism, it's called complementarianism. In the larger culture, it's called patriarchy, right? Um, and, and one of the phrases that um, that is often used in kind of feminist circles around patriarchy is it hurts us all, right? It's not something that just hurts the people who are supposed to be second-class citizens. It also puts really damaging expectations on everyone, right? And so I think the more that men can, you know, really embrace a different level, a different kind of strength than the one that they were taught to embrace. The strength to say, I'm going to tell the truth, come what may. The strength to say, I'm going to be vulnerable, even if it results in you shaming me. The strength to say, you know, I'm going to stand in the ground that is my experience, right? And and hold my own, um, even if it conflicts with the people who I love and respect, right? Um, that's the kind of strength that I think it's important for men to cultivate so that they can come together um, and have some of these really, really difficult conversations and heal, you know? Yeah, it's it's sad and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording as well, my story with purity culture, and like we said, it wasn't really called that, but uh, I'm, I'm just recently started going to therapy for 
anxiety and depression. Uh, and within the youth group or the Sunday school or whatever, wherever it was, you know, we are given these expectations, how we are supposed to be men. Uh, I don't, I already don't fit into that role. I don't, I don't, I'm not like that. I'm not overly masculine. I'm shy. I'm quiet. I'm introverted. And then to, to load onto that, this idea that we, because this is one of the things that was explained to us is, you know, it, as much as we give boys a pass, some of us take this as, uh, we could really harm a woman if, if we took mm-hmm. our relationship too far. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I get a pass, but the girl that I was with, say we had sex and someone found out that we had sex before marriage, uh, I'm going to get a pass mm-hmm. and she's going to be marred for life. Well, my anxiety builds up to the point where then I don't know how to date. I just don't. I have, have absolutely no idea how I'm supposed to date girls. And, and be the good guy, but also be masculine so I can have the locker room talk and which I don't buy into, but I feel like I've been given that role and that's a role I'm going to have to take on. I'm going to have to, to some, to some degree lie about mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. And then you become caught up in your lies and then you, you, you don't know how to move forward. And then what the end result of all of this for me? And I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for other men. But the end result of all of this is I have no idea how to be intimate at all, which I am suffering with to this day. More of my wife's fights, arguments, whatever you want to call them, are about my inability to even hold her hand in public because I don't know how to be intimate. And then I put that onto my children, right? And uh, it's... It's just, it's so harmful. And I, I don't want to, like we said before we started, I don't want to undermine what women are going through because women have had a much harder role in this than we have. But I think it's important for men to say, purity culture has fucked us up too. Totally. I'm sorry for my language. But are you really? And no, I'm not. No. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that you mentioned that men should get together and talk about this, but you know, I was part of a men's group for a while and I guarantee you this would never come up. We talk about how open we are and how good we are at communicating to us guys when we get together, but I guarantee you if this came up, it'd be a room full of silent men and all we'd hear would be crickets because no one would want to venture into this world other than maybe, like I said, do the locker room talk and, and, and bullshit your way through it and laugh and pat each other on the back mm-hmm. and move on to something else that's more manly. So men, we need to talk. We need to open up. We need to explain our role in this, what we've done, and what it's done to us. Gosh, thank you so much for, for opening up in that way. Like, yes, yes. This is strength, right? Like this is what strength looks like for all of us, you know, regardless of gender. And this is what this is what it means I think to do the work to become the people we want to be. The sad part is, you know, what John's talking about is exactly right, you know, and, and what happens is because of the culture, right? Because of this, and I'm really getting, you know, I, it, it, 
even the term purity culture bothers me somewhat just because I think oh, it's, such a, it's, such, it's such a misnomer. Um, it should be called shame culture. It should be. I think we should call it what it is. You're exactly right. It's shame yeah. culture. Because um, the second we link some notion um, of purity to and a puritanical notion, you know, at that of purity to to something that that anyway that that we all experience. So somehow we've carved out this place where you know this is you know this doesn't apply to everybody, but because we've created a culture, um, especially amongst. Now, you know, I shouldn't say that. I think amongst men and women equally probably. But where we don't talk about this, um, what happens is guys like my brother and I, because there's not really an outlet to discuss this, we do this to our own kids. So yeah. being steeped yeah. in the evangelical church when I started having kids, I, sadly, I, I presented both of my daughters purity rings in their 13th birthdays and asked them to sign a pledge. You know what I mean? Um, to my To my shame and something for which I've apologized profusely. And then had similar conversations with my sons. At some point in the last 10 years, I've, I've had conversations with all of them and basically begged them, please don't do this to your kids. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is, there's a much, much healthier way to approach talking to them about, about these topics than, than, you know, putting some burden upon them that they're just, you know, they're just, they were never intended to carry that way. And so maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's how the cycle gets broken as we finally, um, stop being embarrassed and stop being, cowed into not speaking about these things and you know it's it, 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 it and we start we start naming these things for what they are because because that's exactly what it was there was a great deal of shame put upon everybody you know i remember going to uh you know going to church camp in the summertime and and you know poor girls you know man they're they're you know getting in trouble for the for the swimsuits they wore at the pool or you know there was all this so, so how does this intersect with this so-called modesty culture too Mm-hmm. That that somehow and and again I, I I see an intersection between some of these different things modesty culture the so called purity culture and really what we end up with is a rape culture mm-hmm. um, where we've where we've very easily shifted the blame for sexual abuse onto women um, for somehow being that they've somehow invited these kinds of acts by the way that they've dressed or acted or whatever we've decided so do you see that intersection as well as being sort of the sadly a natural outcropping of, of what of what kind of culture they've been raised in. Absolutely. Um, first of all, I would say that purity culture is a rape culture. Um, if you look up the definition of rape culture, it's a culture in which um, rape is covered up and hidden, which unfortunately is a huge theme in purity culture, and also a culture that blames women and girls and other survivors for the rape that they experienced. And that is baked into purity culture. To your point around modesty, that's a great example. You know, as women and girls, we are expected not only to be responsible for our own sexual thoughts and feelings and choices, but we're also said to be responsible for the thoughts and choices, and and that includes actions that men take that we quote-unquote inspire right? Um, If we don't dress modestly enough, if we're too flirtatious to your previous point, if we wear too much makeup, (laughs) you know, if we, you know, um, you know, are too charismatic in a way that's, that's considered, you know, flirtation, even if it's just, you know, someone being friendly in themselves, right? Um, You know, then they are asking for, um, or at the very least, unknowingly inspiring the the sexual thoughts, feelings, and actions of men towards them. So you create a culture in which women and girls in particular, but all survivors are blamed for 
are blamed for sexual assault, are blamed for rape. So this is this is rape culture. If you really, I, I know that's really hard for a lot of people to swallow, but it, just look up the definition of rape culture, <laughs> you know. And it's this is it is purity. Purity culture is is rape culture, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going too far by saying no. that. By the way, no, um, on the least, I think. I, and and you know, you have the data to back this up. By the way, because we're seeing we're seeing play out before our eyes right now very well-known ministries crumbling from the inside out because of sexual abuse scandals that went unreported, undealt with. Bye-bye to Hillsong at some point because they're imploding right now over Brian Houston's, his own, his own, his own bad actions and also his, his covering up of others' actions. We've seen the Catholic Church obviously battling with this for decades now over their inability or their unwillingness to deal with sexual abuse inside of the church. These are, these have real world consequences, right? Especially what, when you, when you were describing the burden that we place on young girls and women, um, to carry, you know, not only the burden of their own sexuality, but the burden of, you know, the sexual thoughts and feelings and potential actions of others. Like how much fucking pressure? I mean, do we want to put on these people, right? It, it's heartbreaking. You know, as a pastor, I would hope to God that, that we would never see this. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, though, because uh, this is this is what happened in my third or fourth year of teaching in a private Christian school. The uh, the youth pastor, who was also a coach and a part-time teacher, um, raped a 10th grader. And the immediate reaction was, and I'm telling you, across the board, top to bottom, was what did she do? And yeah, eventually it had to be dealt with and eventually he was fired and eventually he faced, you know, criminal charges and things like that. Um, but sadly, that was not the first response. The knee jerk response was not, oh my God, this son of a bitch, you know, he, he did this to her. Um, it was immediately, okay, what, what did she do to, to cause him to do this? And he was 35 and she was 14. I don't give a damn. There's nothing she could have done that, that, that could justify. I remember having a talk, remember John with, with Kristen Dumay, and we were talking about this kind of rape culture and this idea that somehow men have been, have been, you know, indoctrinated to some degree to feel helpless, you know? So if somebody walks by and they're dressed immodestly and they're somehow, you know, they, they're, that somehow, you know, as a, as a, as a man, I don't, I'm going to lose control. That's right. And I'm just, you know, and how insulting to men. I mean, we should be insulted by that, by that notion, except that we've used it to protect ourselves, right? Yeah. And sadly, I pass this on to my daughter, right? So she's a 13, 14 year old girl. Uh, and she's dressing in a way that makes her feel empowered. And she likes the way she looks and the way she's dressed. And my first response to her as I saw the way she was dressing was, yeah. I understand that you should have the right to wear whatever you want, but you also need to understand that men can't control themselves. And what a load of bullshit that was. And it took my 13-year-old daughter to say, well, how about we change the culture? How about you guys, men, deal with your issues and your over-sexualizing of young girls, first of all, which is, uh, I'm sorry, guys, it's just gross. Uh, and we've done it and done it. I mean, it, it's, it's put before us in media, movies, music. Uh, this idea of over-sexualizing a young girl is just, it's just, it's bombarded. We are bombarded with it in the media. And then on top of that, don't even, don't even remotely get into how homophobic 
purity mm. culture. Yeah, because that was actually going to be my next question for you was... Yeah, God forbid you're, a, you're attracted to someone of the same sex, right? Right. So how much more does this, does this purity culture, again, this shame culture, how much more or maybe more intensely does this then affect our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters? Because I can, I can imagine going through this as a, you know, at least, at least I had the, I had the false notion that the sexual feelings I had were, were normal, mm-hmm. quote unquote, again, mm-hmm. with their quotes. But does that not just intensify with somebody who's now raised inside of a culture that says those feelings of same sex attraction or whatever, you know, whether it's non-binary, or whatever, but that those are not, that's, you're, now you're just, you're, you're outside the bounds completely, right? Yeah. So this is, this is a great question because both we coming off of the rape conversation, because both rape and sexual assault and, you know, the LGBTQIA experience are not talked about in purity culture. They are deemed so untouchable that there's no reference to them, right? Um, you know, I remember growing up, people would say like, oh, I don't even believe in the word gay, right? Because that's to like, not even growing up, I heard that more recently, like that's to accept that one could be gay, right? <laughs> like, you know, so so instead what we talk about is the problem with your sinful sexual desires, right? What What damage happened to you growing up that not only you have sexual desires, but that they are these particularly particularly ugly sexual desires we're going to deem them that way right you must have been hurt growing up you must you know so like there's a lot of like when people do admit these things there's a lot of like psych, kind of like armchair psych, psychology that people bring to kind of again go back to this question of what did you do or what did someone do to you that you became so awful, right? You know, so impure. And again, we're back to, um, you know, now we're not in the realm of women and girls. We're in the realm of other othered people, right? In the power hierarchy of purity culture, um, you know, where people are defined by their sexuality, right? You are impure, right? Um, so, so yeah, so it, there, you know, one of the things that I talk about when I talk about purity culture is that there's, um, intersectional marginalization because purity culture is about a lot of different things. It's about, um, you know, queerness. It's about your gender expression. It's about your sexual expression. It's about race. It's about ethnicity. You know, there are these ideas that Americans somehow have it right, that white people somehow have it right, (laughs) you know, when it comes to sexual quote unquote purity, right? You know, so all of these things are come into play in this culture. And so the marginalization is intersectional. Some people might experience, you know, for me growing up as a cisgender straight woman, I only experienced the, the marginalization as a girl, as a woman, whereas a, a, a queer black woman is going to experience intersectional marginalization around her blackness, which, you know, many black people in particular have expressed, um, feeling like they could never really be pure within this culture because of the color of their skin. Well, that, I mean, we can look at the past, right? And, uh, with going back into, you know, slave culture and all that and the oversexualization of, of specifically black women. Yeah, we can look into the present with that as well. Yeah, and that that bleeds all the way up into current day. So there's still this over-sexualization of black women within our culture that uh, for some reason uh, white men can be 
overpowered by this oversexualized black woman. Yeah. Which is, and uh, really, and really, we have that for almost every race when it comes yes, to women. Yes. We have a hypersexualization of Latinas. We have a hypersexualization of some Asian women, right? Yeah. I have yeah. um, a friend who was a um, Asian woman who was a model who said when she walked down the street wearing her glasses, she fit into one stereotype and people would totally ignore her. And when she took her glasses off, she fit into another stereotype and she couldn't, she would get followed walking down the street, you know? And we just, anyway, and we just lobbies into the, 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 like a fetish world, right? That That's just a fetish. And that makes it somehow, yeah, it's weird. And it's not, it's, it's probably not okay, but you know, it's just something all guys do. We all have these weird fetishes, right? Yeah. But even outside of fetishizing, it, it's sort of like this, it's like this, um, undercurrent of just how we think, <laughs> you know, because it's such a big part of the culture, you know, so, so it's one of the ways in which, you know, for, you know, for, for a white woman, you know, as long as she follows all the rules, which is hard and dehumanizing and all the things, right. You know, she is awarded uh, for a straight white girl, right. Or, or someone who presents that way awarded with like goodness as a second class citizen, right? You're never going to be a man. You're never going to be a straight white man, (laughs) but you can be, but you can be, you can be their supporters. You can be their cheerleaders, right? Um, Once you stop following the rules, you fall into the muck with the rest of the world who is never going to be good enough. Who's never going to even be a second class citizen, right? You know, and, and we could play this by a lot of different lines, right? But, but the point is, there's a lot going on here and that certainly there are some of us who experience one form of marginalization and some of us who experience multiple forms and some of us who are in fact deemed, you know, given a lot of power within this community. And yet even that was harmful, right? Yeah. Yeah. To, to folks who, who were awarded this power, you know, to, to your point previously, John, about this feeling of, um, of being responsible for women and girls' purity, right? And, and wanting to, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot is that um, men who grew up in purity culture, I often hear from them that they're, um, first of all, they're often haunted by the sexuality of women, right? Because they buy into the sexual lies about women, right? But second of all, they oftentimes either kind of excuse all of their sexual stuff, even sexual abuse, as we discussed, right? As sort of like, this is part of my masculine makeup, or they're so terrified to go to your point around holding your wife's hand. They're so terrified of their sexuality because they've learned that it's a threat. They've learned that it's a danger. They've learned they can't control it, right? That that becomes the thing that they deal with, a fear of sexuality. You know, instead of saying, yeah, I'm having a sexual thought and maybe the world is not going to end. Thought and action are different things, <laughs> right? We go into a state of anxiety or, or many men have told me they go into a state of anxiety um, that, you know, is is sort of like dealing with the, the perception of the beast within, right? Um, which can be very, very challenging and damaging in its own right. Well, and, and the church does a really good job of reminding us that our heart is deceitful above all things, right? So even my heart, even, at, and then you can throw things at people, right? That uh, what Jesus says about, uh, even if I have an impure thought, I'm supposed to pluck my eye out. So 
we are demonized not only for our actions, and this is goes for women and men. I'm not I'm not using this for men only, but we're demonized for not only for our actions, but we, the church demonizes us for our thoughts. That's right, and, and holds us up to this this unattainable goal of purity. Uh, unattainable, that, and if you attain it, creates its own suite of lifelong issues. Yeah, it creates. Yeah, it creates an issue with intimacy. Period. Because if I was to have a conversation with someone that I found attractive, and in the back of my mind I had some kind of thought about, wouldn't it be nice to go out, you know, have a, you know, go out on a date with this person? Be it, you know, if you're a married person or not. But okay, you're now, you now you're sinning. Period. Mm-hmm. You're sinning. Mm-hmm. And then so then you have to create an environment where that doesn't happen, which creates an environment where you are standoffish, uh, you are unapproachable. Uh, if you are going to take it to this nth degree, and then it's 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 just it's hurtful all the way around. Well, and so much of this culture that uh, the way that you know, again, I'm speaking from my own experience. So, so much of my experience inside of this culture was based upon appearances. So, my wife and I dated through high school, and so we 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 did things the quote unquote right way. You know, we, we dated for we as kids and got married and went. But I remember I remember being chastised by the older people in the church for for looking like we were up to something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We would go into yeah. a room to talk and we'd shut the door and somebody would kick the door in and be like, hey, hey, hey. We need to but their their favorite line was we need to avoid the appearance of impropriety. Mm-hmm. And so there was such a caricature too. I noticed this, John, did you notice this? And we when we when when we would separate the boys from the girls and we would go off to have our talks, right? Yeah. Um the 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 male would talk to us guys and, and explain to us how we work. Um, and, and always in very two dimensional, you know, caricature type terms. So, you know, you gotta understand guys that, that you're visual people, men are visual, right? And so that was why they put so much of the onus on the women because, um, how they presented themselves, um, was going to directly link to how we would interact with them because we're so visual. Um, that, you know, we were never told, you know, Hey, if you see an attractive girl and she's scantily clad, um, you could just walk past her. <laughs> you know what? Right. You know how we solve the rape issue, guys? Don't rape. Okay, good. Yeah. We're done. Okay, moving yeah. on. Um, it's really not that difficult, but it it got turned into this big complex thing. And I really think that so much of it just comes from again, if we go back to the use of the word purity, <laughs> we have just we've imbued this one part of our of our of our human experience with so much weight. We've given it so much weight that you know it, it's impossible for it to not come back and bite you, right? I mean, there's just no way to live up to the standards that have been set for you, or live to the standards. Like right, you know, right. Uh, right? It will even take the word up out, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's absolutely crazy. And then and then, or if you do, or if you there are, and there are some who do live the standards. But like I said, you know, I do coaching of um, a lot of folks, including a lot of folks who did live the standards, right? Um, and then discover, oh man, that messed me up. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're saying is that church will mess you up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not everyone, it's fascinating to me that not everyone comes out of purity culture deeply damaged, right? It does True. feel like the number of people who do is, you know, certainly from my vantage point is utterly and absolutely overwhelming. You know, there are some people who, who claim 
not to experience anything, you know, uh, to have a very healthy sexual life and so on and so forth. What I find interesting though, is that among those folks, there is still a guardedness, right? Um, They're not willing to tell me about that perfect life, (laughs) right? Just to kind of give it a headline of it's great. You know, it's healthy, it's great. But like, yeah. Anyway, go on. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, I think it, I think if you could get them alone and know that there'd be no consequences for what they said, I think you'd find out there's probably a large quantity or large number of them who are lying. I think I think that that is for many people. I think that is true. Yeah. Or do you think would you find this to be true as well? Though to the degree that you bought into that culture, right, might be the Absolutely. degree that it messed you up. I will say that you know on some level, my wife and I bought into it. On other levels, we dismissed it entirely. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't find myself deeply, deeply damaged by that culture because I rejected a ton of it. Um, totally. in, in broad strokes, yeah, we bought into it. The no sex before marriage thing, we were pretty committed to. And, and honestly, there's, if I, if I'm being really honest with you, if that's, if that's the decision you've made, um, there's a good, there, there's enough good reasons to make that decision too. Mm-hmm. Um, shame mm-hmm. not being a good one of those. So there's, there's ways to teach this kind of stuff without heaping the shame on and say, listen, this is a, this is a viable life choice, you know, but I do find that those who were deeply, deeply, you know, either it was really, really intensely taught in their experience or they really, really bought into it, um, seems to be that you'd see that that would be that rise in how, how deeply they were damaged or how, um, how, you know, how, how long they were, they, they experienced that trauma, right? Yeah. So the research would tell us that the indicators, um, I believe there are three indicators, but I'm only remembering two right now, um, are gender. If you're, um, I mean, I feel like I'm speaking in very binary terms around gender right now, but, but the research would find that if you're a woman, you're more likely to experience shame if you grew up within this culture, um, or the other suite of issues. Um, and then two, your level of religiosity and how much it was tied to your identity, right? Like, were you super duper duper religion, religious? And was that your, you know, like, for example, when I studied abroad in high school, I remember writing an essay for my host family and being like, well, I got to write in the first paragraph that I'm a Christian because that is like, they have to know that before they know anything else about it. <laughs> right, right. right? You know, so that level of religiosity, you know, is, is really, really important um, because, because often that leads to the level of bias. Not always, right? Um, and then, you know, the other thing is like the, you know, we all have different like tendencies more toward what some researchers would call a guilt response, which is the feeling I did something bad, quote unquote. Um, and some of us tend more toward a shame response. I am something bad, right? And when you're within a culture that nails the shame response in, which I, which purity culture being a shame culture does, you know, then those of us who are more prone toward a shame response are going to go really far down that shame spiral. Whereas those of us who are more prone toward a guilt response, like I did this, but it doesn't define me, right? Or what have you, are going to have a different, are going to have a different kind of bounce. You know, the, the shame can bounce off of them in a different way, right? Um, so, you know, we're all different <laughs> right? in yeah, all right. of our different ways. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it boils down to this, right? And I think uh, we've said this already that the purity culture is the better definition is it's a rape culture. But I think another, another is also a phobia culture. Uh, so it is homophobic. It is transphobic. It's a racist culture. It is very racist. Uh, and it's, and it's just, 
uh, because, and like we've talked with some of our other guests, white cisgendered people are considered normative and everything outside of that is somehow abnormal. So we also have to realize that um, this purity culture is steeped in racism and um, it, it just, it can't be denied. And so these might be harsh words to say about something that people think is, you know, is, isn't harmful and it's just trying to make us better people. But if you dig deep into it, it's, it's super harmful. It's, it's messing people up <laughs> and it has long term life changing effects, right? Yeah, and I want to, knowing that we're kind of nearing our close, I want to shift a little bit into like a, a note on hope, though. Okay, that, that's always good. <laughs> yeah, because one of the extraordinary things about us as people is that our brains are plastic. So they're, they're flexible, they're changeable. So even when we have these really long paved neural pathways around shame, around, you know, all of the other things that come up around um, uh, folks who are raised in purity culture, we can change, right? It takes time. It takes work, right? Sometimes it takes therapy, to your point. You know, it takes um, open openness and, and being able to look at it, right? Um, and, and it takes like incremental slow changes, right? Um, maybe we can't have sex and feel good, right? You know, so can we take that off the table <laughs> and work on like snuggling and having sexual feelings and feeling good and experiencing that in a way that feels really, really great, before we let ourselves try to move into the next part, right? So that our body can experience the alternative to the shame, right? Um, so that we can have positive intimacy without the triggers, right? Um, and slowly, slowly, I have repeatedly over time, you know, through my coaching, I've seen it, pe- people move over time, you know, different things like that, you know, People do shift, people do change, and healing is possible. And, and to your, you know, you all brought up the next generation a couple of times. So I want to bring that back um, in this hope lens, right? You know, one of the things that I think your kids are going to be hearing is I imagine your kids listen to your podcast, right? Yeah, probably not. So, <laughs> well, maybe, maybe they will eventually, or they hear you having these conversations around the dinner table or with friends or what have you. Like, the point is, you may have taught them something that that was deeply damaging and, and they might have to contend with that in their future, right? But they will also have the information of you saying, I was wrong, (laughs) right? Of them watching you grow and learn. Um, and also of them more importantly, because more important than what we, what we say is what we do. They're going to have the experience of watching you work through your own stuff. And if you actually want to have your kids, the next generation grow up healthy, that's actually what you need to do. You know, because research is clear that what we tell kids is not even close to as effective as what we model, right? So, so you all doing this work, you all saying like, 
I'm going to figure this stuff out, you know, for myself, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that not only is going to heal you, but that is going to be healing to the next generation. So, you know, for folks who want to do something different to their kids, for their kids, you know, try to resist the like, I'm a lost <laughs> cause, but yeah. let me do it right for them, right? You know, let me tell them the right thing, but like my, I'm a lost cause, right? You know, actually doing the work on ourselves is the best thing that we can do yeah. for the future. No, I love that I you, uh, that you, that, and we are getting close to having a wrap up. So I, I, I like ending on a hopeful note. I am, um, I'm also hopeful because I see, I see people like you. And, and, and others, I've seen this topic come up way more in the last couple of years than I have in, in the previous 20. So, um, thankfully, um, maybe I guess, a, maybe I guess a, a, a good result of some of these things coming to light is the conversations are, are being somewhat forced. And, and I, and I do see people willing to, to have the, the conversation. So within cult, within church culture, that's where I'm more pessimistic. Um, within the culture writ large, uh, I see, I see hope there. I need to see the church step up and start actually owning up to some of their crap. And, uh, that, that starts with me as a pastor. It starts with my other friends who I know who are pastors who are dealing with this, but the, the culture with inside of the church is a slow moving thing to change. And so I can see that I can see it being useful to have some people who are still connected to those institutions who are, who are tilting at windmills inside, you know, and saying, listen, no, actually, just to, just, to, just to end it on a quick up, uplifting note, again, maybe it's uplifting. I don't know, but somebody did come to me at some point, um, inside my church and say, Hey, I really want to, I want to, I want to teach this Bible study for, for, uh, for, for young girls. And it's all about purity culture. And I told them to get the hell out. And I'm like, no. <laughs> It's like, no. I've <laughs> done that, have the t-shirt and the therapy bills to show it. Um, no, we're not, we're not perpetuating this garbage. It's, you know, I'm not going to be responsible for this. So, and I, and I wasn't the only one, you know, I, I, I've talked to some of my other friends and they're like, oh no, no, we wouldn't do that. And so there is, there is some glimmer of hope that, that things can begin to change. Um, but I think that's, I think that's where the lion's share of the work is going to have to happen is in, inside of some of these, insulated institutions that don't feel like they have any accountability to anyone. But yeah, all of that, I, I said that was going to be uplifting. It didn't seem particularly uplifting. Um, <laughs> well, I think what you're saying is, I think what you're saying is it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, you know, um, changing in the church is like turning a cruise ship, right? It's not like agile. It's not nimble, right? You know, many, many churches anyway and sort of the church, capital C. But there are people who are at the wheel and who are turning that wheel, you know? And and I and I, I see that as well. You know, I see I do see people like you, you know, grabbing hold of that wheel and wheel and dragging it, you know, and saying, We gotta turn this thing. And um yeah. Yeah, that's a, it, it's the same I would I would liken it to the same speed at which the church is finally dealing with with the, the LGBTQIA issue, right? It it it's happening. I know for those who are inside of that community, it seems glacially slow and it's too slow. For those of us who are on the outside kind of looking in, I, I do see it moving in the right direction, at least. I know that the I have a friend who's Methodist and the Methodists are, are about to have a come to Jesus meeting about about a year and a half. In 2024, mm. that church is going mm-hmm. to split. Uh, it's almost it's almost guaranteed that half their members are going to disaffiliate. Yeah, they had a lot of come to Jesus meetings about that they already. Did, they yeah. did, and they have they have resolved <laughs> to not resolve this issue. So the Methodist Church, as a whole, will be 
LGBTQI affirming. And then those who don't want to go with that will disaffiliate and form their own things or join other Methodist groups. But they're not the only ones dealing with this in, in, in real world issues, right? So mm-hmm. what I what I find heartening is there was half of that church willing to say, no, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to be um, held back by your preconceived notions. We're going to go ahead and move forward with this. That's actually, on a, to, for a church of that size, to have that many of its members say, no, we will affirm this community. To me, that's enormous. And it's going to be a painful, hard thing to watch play out. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a complicated thing to watch play out. But I think, I think the more that these kinds of issues turn in that direction, I think we'll see, hopefully, maybe even as a byproduct of that, that some of this shame culture begins to dissipate and erode and people actively work against it. So that would be my hope. All of that being said, Linda, you're doing amazing work. We are so, so we're just, we're just happy that you, that you were willing to join us on the podcast. We are. I'm excited about what you're doing and, you know, and, and thankful that you're willing to have the tough conversations even with a couple of old white dudes. So we, we do appreciate <laughs> all of that. Um, we will link to all of your stuff in the show notes. You guys, uh, buy the books, uh, go on the Facebooks and all the other social needs. <laughs> all the Facebooks, John, I said the there's Facebooks, more than one. Yeah, you want to go to the, all the Facebooks? Um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely follow the show notes for all things related and help us support the work that's being done, right? So thank you once again for coming on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.